You can turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17, and uh, we'll be picking up in verse 20. John chapter 17, verse 20. So if you haven't been in a while, we're in week seven of a nine-week series, so you'll have some catching up to do. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. We are in week seven of a nine-week series called The True Series, where we've been looking at Jesus through the, um, the eyes of John, one of his, his closest, arguably his closest friend, um, a disciple who is his closest friend. And we are just kind of breaking down this idea that the closer you get to something, the easier it is to identify its authenticity or its imitation, whether it's a Rolex or a Folex, whether it's Ray-Bans or Oakleys or Folkleys, right? From far away, they look about the same. But when you get up close, the closer you'd get, the better you can identify or determine the authenticity of something or its imitation. And so we've looked at Jesus through John's eyes, because he was arguably one of, he was Jesus's closest friends. And so um, John's gospel is a lot longer than the other three. Um, and that's because uh, John recorded a lot of the private conversations that Jesus had with, with him and with the disciples alongside his public ministry. Uh, and through those eyes, John was able to authenticate Jesus as the son of God, the true word, the true bread, the true vine, the true vision, um, all these things that um, maybe uh, from a distance, people saw the miracles, people saw um, the different things that were happening. And yes, that did, that was, that was a sign that there was power on the scene. There was power in the world that they hadn't seen before. But John authenticated Jesus as the son of God. And that's why um, all of the great I am statements that we get about Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the, the true word, I'm the true vine, I am the true bread. Um, I am, uh, th those statements all come from the gospel of John. And that's because even, even 50 years later when John penned the gospel, he could authenticate by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, as the Son of God, relationally, through the character of his heart and what that meant. And so we've been, we've been going through the different, um, different chapters in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John looking at some of these I am statements and these, pri these conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. So in John chapter 17, um, it looks red, in your Bible. That's because it's one of the longest monologues uh, that is recorded uh, that Jesus said. And it's actually just a long prayer. But I'm going to give you some context about where, like what the setting is. So the, um, Jesus had just finished sharing a meal, a Passover meal, with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, it's where he washed their feet. It's where he passed the, the bread around, and he said, we're all going to be eating out of this one loaf. We're sharing this bread together, but this is also my body that's it's, it's going to be broken for you, and you're going to partake in that, and it's going to be the bread that nourishes your soul and your spirit. And he passed the cup around. And he said, this cup 
this cup of wine or juice, this cup we're all going to drink from, but it is the cup of the new covenant, and it represents the blood that I'm going to pour out that is going to be shed for the remission of sin, that you will be able to be born again into the family of God. I mean, he's talking about these things that we're all, we're all drinking from this, this cup, and his disciples, right, they're, they're confused about what it means. They're sometimes arguing about what it means, um, but uh, this, there's this, this intimate moment, this intimate time, and Jesus is sharing a lot of, um, a lot of things that he spoke about in parables before. He's saying, hey, the time is short. The time is coming, and John chapter 17 is actually when Jesus, he, uh, he arose with his disciples and began to walk through Jerusalem. Um, he, was, uh, um, he was headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane where he would betrayed, be, where he would be betrayed or he was arrested um, and uh, where he would be arrested. And this was really the day before he was going to be crucified. And so there was a, a river along the east side of the city, along the east side of Jerusalem, and it would have been full at this time of year because of the, the rainy months had, had risen, so it would have been a, a rushing river um, at that time or a rushing brook or stream, and there was really one place um, that they would have had to go to cross um, and go over the bridge and cross that stream into uh, to to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Mount of Olives was over there um, as well. And so they would have been walking through the streets, and this prayer, right, Jesus is praying an extended prayer. He's praying out loud so the disciples can hear, and he's praying for himself, he's praying for his friends, and he's praying for believers in every age and every time, say, that's me, that's me. He's praying for us in, out loud in front of the disciples before the Father, walking through the streets towards the garden where he was going to be arrested. And I would say this is really, this is the real Lord's Prayer, right? The model that Jesus taught the disciples earlier in his ministry, um, he had no need to pray himself. He didn't have to say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because he was without sin, right? There was, there was nothing wrong or unholy about him. He had no need of the prayer um, that he taught his disciples to pray. Um, so we might call that the disciples' prayer. That's how he taught us to pray. But this passage... This passage records and almost uniquely records a complete, you know, 10 to 15 minute prayer that Jesus prayed. And many times in the gospels, it says that, you know, Jesus withdrew to pray or he went away to pray or he got up in early in the morning to pray or he left his disciples to pray in another place. And so there were lots of times where it says that he went to pray. But this is a, um, a front to back monologue of our Lord's prayer. And so, and it's really the last thing that um, he leaves uh, uh, his disciples with. And he prayed five verses for himself, 13 verses for his friends, and seven verses for all believers. So the first thing he prayed for was himself. And basically to summarize it, he says, I, Father, I have glorified you. Now you glorify me. Does that seem odd? I mean, can you imagine praying to God yourself at close to the end of your life? God, 
I've glorified you, now you glorify me. I mean, it almost sounds demanding, like maybe even a little arrogant, like, I mean, does that sound like your prayers? It, it, it doesn't particularly sound like mine. Okay, it's really quiet in here. Does that sound like prayer? Like, do, can you see yourself praying, Father, I've glorified you with assurance. I have glorified you. Now, it's your turn. You glorify me. Right? And because he even had assurance that he would be glorified. I mean, it was, it was written about in the prophets before. Um, he, uh, you know, he had assurances from scripture. He had assurances from personal experience, from hearing the voice of God. He had assurance that his father would glorify him. And yet he still prayed for it. And we see, we see just a little window into something there that promises are not designed to supersede prayer but to be the guide of our desires and the ground under our hopes. Just because you have a promise for something, you're assured of something, doesn't mean you don't pray for it. Right? Even Jesus, who was, by all accounts, had unbroken fellowship with God, with the Father, he was completely and 100% assured of this glorification. He still prayed for it. And he prayed for it out loud. Promises are not designed to supersede our prayers or to replace them, but to be the guide of our desires. The promises, they guide our desires in informing and sanctifying our heart. And they are the ground under our hopes. Then Jesus paid, prayed, not paid, Jesus prayed for his friends and he says some, I mean, shocking things. Just to give you an idea, to start out, he says, Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. What an endorsement before the Father. Can you imagine walking with Jesus in his presence and Jesus begins to pray to the Father and what he says in an, is an endorsement and saying, yeah, they did it right. Does that, I mean, how would you feel to be endorsed before the Father by Jesus himself? Now, to be fair, how would you describe the faith of the disciples? The behavior of the disciples? What are some words? How would you describe it? Immature, yeah. I mean, many times Jesus said, oh, you of underdeveloped faith, have I been with you so long and still you don't believe? Right, what else? Wavering, inconsistent, what else? Soulish, right? Like, the, they, they got confused. They blended 
the things of their upbringing and their thoughts of what they thought the Messiah was going to be based on their religious upbringing, and they couldn't really unravel that stuff from what Jesus was saying. Were they prone to infighting among themselves? Yeah. They're quarreling over who was gonna be sitting at the right hand of the Father. They were quarreling over keeping kids away and, and people that were defiled or unclean away from Jesus and calling down fire on people. I mean, they, they were getting afraid in storms. I mean, there is in no way in, in, your, in our look, if we were making a list of strengths and weaknesses, would we say, yes, the disciples, they kept the word of Jesus, and they believed, they did, they, they, that would not be our endorsement. But it was Jesus's endorsement. So I say, was this lip service? Was it double speak? Was it cheap grace? Unwarranted praise? Or was Jesus looking at them differently than we look at things, right? Because as believers, we can know something is true and act as if it is true without understanding all the details or implications. And though their immaturity had grieved Jesus many times, their belief in him and their progress with him were his joy. Jesus Christ accepts the sincerity of their faith and graciously passes by the weakness of it. Let me say that again, because that, honestly, that, that left me undone this week. Jesus Christ accepts the sincerity of your faith and graciously passes by the weakness of it. See how willing he is to make the best of us to say the best about us, to ask the best for us. And I thought, Lord, you look at me not the way I look at me. Lord, you look at the people around me not the way I look at the people around me. And then he prays for us, for all of us. Picking up in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, referring to his friends, the 11 that were walking with him. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. What does Jesus pray for in a word? 
What does he pray for? I heard unity. He prays over and over for oneness. 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 Jesus is living out. He's He's living out a connection that was later identified by James, right? Because he was praying for us to be kept. He was praying for our hearts to be sanctified by the truth, um, the the word of God. And then he moves right on and he prays. It's not just poetry. He's praying for our oneness. And James identified, he said, wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. There's first a a sanctifying work of the motives and the intentions of our hearts, and that enables us to be connected in oneness with one another. Jesus prays for oneness. You know, where there is no purity of motives in our hearts, there can be no oneness. There can be no unity Our unity is not just like a nice decoration for the body of Christ. It's not an extra, a beautification strategy. Oneness is essential. Oneness is what Jesus was pouring his heart out for, out loud before his disciples to the Father. Oneness a defining characteristic. You know, there are some counterfeits to oneness. The world or secular institutions, society, cultures around the world, they like to hold up um, the concept of coexistence. And I am not gonna bash coexistence. So if you like that word, it's okay, you're safe. Coexistence describes Shared space without shared governance. And why does the world think it has our number on this? On on the whole unity debate, on, on coexistence. Why does the world think it has our number on it? Well, I would say one thing, for a long time, Sunday has been the most sorted and the most segregated place in the world. For a long time. The body of Christ is more sorted and segregated on Sunday morning than we're, we're, we've some, in some ways become a, a banner for anti-oneness. But I want to say humbly, not here. Not here, not at Agape. I'm not saying we have it all figured out, but not here. We're not going there. We're not giving in to that. Coexistence describes shared space without shared governance. So the world can say, all right, we can occupy the same dirt and we can breathe the same air without hurting each other. Right? That's the, is this better than violence? Yes, it is better than violence. Is it better than hurting each other? Yes. But is that really the best that we can offer one another? That we can occupy the same dirt and, sh- and breathe the same air without hurting one another? You know, the reality is that people without shared governance ultimately clash. 
And I'm not talking about shared government of shared governance of social behaviors or or or, or, or norms or outward things. I'm talking about shared governance of the heart. And when coexistence ultimately fails over and over and over again, the world will turn to uniformity. Uniformity looks at the outward things. Uniformity describes identical appearance, conformity of behavior, and the absence of variation. The world turns to legislation and legal ease and ever longer contracts and codes of conduct and various kinds of uniforms. And I'm not just talking about school uniforms. Every subculture in our society has a uniform. And if you're part of the subculture, you're expected to wear it. When coexistence fails, we turn to uniformity. We try to stamp out the things that are causing, we think are causing the violence. So we, or, or the hurt or the woundedness or the polarization, we try to stamp out the outward things. And the tools we use are uniformity to get to coexistence. And it will ultimately fail. Just look at the endless diversity of facial expressions in this room and around the globe. Look at the infinite diversity of snowflakes and sunsets. The Lord Jesus was not praying for coexistence or uniformity. He was praying for oneness. He was not praying for sameness. He was praying for oneness. This idea of oneness, if you think about it in a, like, in singing, because we like to sing around here, um, you know, you can, we can all sing and try to sing the exact same melody at the same time as one voice, and, it will, and we can kind of go along together, but it will sound thin. We can, and that's kind of the picture of uniformity. We can also all sing different songs in the same place, all at the same time. It'll sound like chaos, Right? But we can willfully decide to set our frustrations and the dissonance aside and say, no, I'm not going to ridicule and hurt the person next to me, even though they're singing a different song. And that's coexistence. Oneness, true unity, is most like the harmony of distinctive, many distinctive voices joyfully submitting to one another under the direction of a great conductor who not only wrote the song, but also designed the sound of each voice and tenderly yearns over the hearts of the audience. Oneness, true unity, is more about character than preferences, more about heart motives than experience. When our voices, when we're not trying to be the same, but when our hearts joyfully submit to one another, under the direction of the great conductor of the Holy Spirit. He can orchestrate us where we can see and experience oneness, not sameness. Are you with me so far? Hello? Okay. So what are the first fruits of this prayer for oneness? Who are the first fruits of Jesus' prayer for oneness? Jews and Gentiles, they had almost nothing in common. Nothing. 
They didn't have religious upbringing in common. They didn't have values in common. Um, they, in fact, hated each other on many. They were mistrustful of one another. I mean, if you look at two groups, right, these two groups were the most diametrically opposed groups. They challenged identities. They mistrusted the upbringing. I mean, I, I mean if you made a list, that there, there was almost nothing in common except they occupied the same dirt and they breathed the same air. But groups don't come together. People do. This is probably the biggest misunderstanding around unity or around oneness. Groups don't come together in mass. Jews and Gentiles didn't reconcile in one giant glorious service. Jews and Gentiles were first fruits of this prayer for oneness, one relationship at a time, one friendship at a time. Peter and Cornelius, Paul and Apollos, John and Barnabas, Philip and the eunuch, Phoebe and Priscilla, Epinatus and Achaia. There's a whole list of others in Romans chapter 16 and all the different, like, um, different parts of Paul's epistles in the book of Acts in the introductions and the conclusions and his greetings to different people. You can see lots and lists of, of sh this Hebrew name and this Roman name and all of the friendships. You can see that Jews and Gentiles were the first fruits of Christ's prayer for oneness, not in mass as in two groups coming together, but in the, the lighting and the connecting of individual relationships and friendships that meshed across the divide that had held them apart. Right? And the first, the first fruits in my life, um, the first fruits of this prayer for oneness in my life was uh, with Pastor James here. And many of you probably remember or know Pastor James, but the, the man that God, is, like the person that God assigned to disciple me when I first came to Christ was a black man that had, didn't look like me, did not sound like me, did not have the same gifts and graces that I did, did not have the same perspective on things going on in our culture or the same perspective on city government or what was going on in our region or social issues or different things. There, we had almost nothing in common except sincerity of faith and heart motives to grow in Christ. That we, we, we believed that God's favor was better than life. We believed that sin was the worst of evils. We believed that Christ was the best of friends and that there was another life after this one. You know, I grew up in San Luis Obispo here and I had not, I didn't have one friend of color growing up. There weren't many to choose from. I will say, in our schools growing up, but it was just easier not to. It wasn't because I set out, said, I don't want to have any. But when Pastor James was assigned, God assigned him to disciple me, that, that was the first fruit of oneness. It wasn't like I then could, uh, you know, pull out my, my wallet and say, well, I have the card. I have one black friend now. I'm okay. I got one. And without meaning, like, I, I hear a lot of people talk about their friendships across whatever divide as if it was like a token. Well, I've got one. The problem must not be with me. 
But what I want to say is that his friendship was a first fruit, not a final one. And that leads us to the purpose of oneness. You know, it's easy to take the oneness of the Father and the Son for granted because how Jesus prayed for our oneness is he related it to, he says, Father, as you and I are one, this is the oneness that I'm praying for in the body of Christ for all those in every age who will believe. Because the Father and Son are one in essence, they're one in design, they're one in honor, they're equal in power and glory, but they manifested, they had different operation, they, had different, they, they revealed themselves to us in different ways that we would, we, would know, we would know the will of the Father, the essence of the Father, the glory of the Father through the Son who came and dwelt among us. There's this oneness, but not sameness. And there are actually three purposes, I believe, for oneness that are identified kind of in this passage. One is to give us the privilege of oneness. Like, oneness is actually a reward. Yes, it can be uncomfortable to get on the bridge, but oneness really is a reward. Jesus prayed we would not only have a stated interest in the love of God, but enjoy the comfort of that interest. He prayed that we would not only know God, but have the enjoyment every day in the knowing that we know him together. Right? Our society trains us to fixate on our differences rather than celebrate our distinctions, to recognize beauty that doesn't sound or look like our own is a reward. The same three gifts get boring after a while. I'm serious. It's a reward to receive the bounty of creativity and grace and gifting that God, has, that God has spread out and, and measured out his glory all over the globe in all kinds of people. To recognize that beauty is a reward. To honor God's gifts and graces in others is a reward. And two is to engage us in the duty of oneness. Because yes, there is a duty here. There is work involved, and it can be messy, but we are called to this work. You know, in consideration of what we have in one God and one Christ, and of what we hope for in one heaven, yes, the whole body of Christ, in all her glory and her distinctions, and all the ways we're not the same, but we're one, we're all going to be at the same table in heaven. There's one heaven. And in light of that, we need to be of one heart. All the platforms of the world, the worldly accolades, the worldly glory, the worldly influence, worldly affirmation, all those things sets people at odds because at the, the, what the world, when the world promotes some, it by nature passes over others. When one student gets a scholarship, another student is passed over. When once, when, when, uh, when, when, I mean, the, in, when one is promoted, another is passed over. I mean, it's, it, and even the disciples struggled with this. 
right? When the disciples dreamed of the kingdom through worldly eyes, they quarreled about who would sit closest to Jesus and what their roles would be in the coming kingdom. I mean, the, the, in reality, though, the, the spiritual honor that Christ has bestowed on us is so overwhelmingly great, right? There is just no reason for envy or desperation or manipulation. Like, I mean, it's shocking. It says, we have been made kings and priests before God. And the more we are taken up with the real glory Christ has given us, the less we strive against one another for vain glory, and thus, really, the more one we experience, the more oneness we experience with one another. And the third purpose is to recommend Christ to the world. Did you know that our oneness furthers the public good on the Central Coast? Our oneness furthers the public good. Our oneness is a happy influence on all those around us. Our oneness demonstrates God's goodwill to all people. Our oneness is evidence that Christianity is true. When our Christian faith, instead of causing quarrels about itself, actually makes our fighting cease, then the world will see women and men kind and loving to one another, courteous and generous to one another, studious to preserve and promote peace among one another. And this, this oneness will recommend Christ to all because only Christ prevails to join so many of different backgrounds, different personalities and interests in one body of faith with one heart by love. Our oneness is the evidence to the world that God is real, that God is love because No matter how much the world holds up coexistence and then turns to uniformity as its tools, they will always fail because there is no shared governance in the heart. Only Christ can lead us in shared governance of the heart to oneness, not sameness. Jesus said earlier in, in the Gospel of John, he says, by this, by this, by this oneness, by this charity, this, this good intentions, these motives towards one another, this sincerity and faith about one another, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. That's what authenticates Christ to the world, our oneness. When the world gets up close to us, they shouldn't see a segregated Sunday, When the world gets up close to us, they should see oneness. And that will recommend Christ. So my question is, what are your enemies of oneness? And I'm gonna be real vulnerable here and tell you what my enemies to oneness are. Maybe some of these will resonate with you, but this is not an exhaustive list. It's just the ones I'm dealing with at the moment. You know, as a pastor on the Central Coast, we're, we're part of a, an association or part of a, um, a roundtable, um, a group of the other pastors, and, and, and we're really supposed to be the first fruits, the models for coming together, working together, laboring together, for demonstrating and kind of leading this, this, um, this, uh, this experience of oneness in the body of Christ here in our region. And so I'm gonna use what what enemies come in just in that very circle. 
The first one is I feel jealousy. I have feelings of jealousy. You know, specifically, how many of you uh, um, are familiar or know of Active Church here in San Luis Obispo? Right? It's a church that's about two years old, has a very charismatic leader, friend of mine. The church is already bigger than our church. And I know I feel jealousy because when I swipe through and I see how good they're, you know, I see events on my Facebook page, I want to shoot past it and I feel my ears getting hot and I don't want to know anything about it. Those are feelings of jealousy and they war against oneness. The enemy subtly comes in and I feel jealous. I feel jealousy and it makes me not feel content with what God has blessed the... Ah, what God has blessed us with. So I have to lay that feeling of jealousy down and celebrate that God is doing great things and many people have come to know him and yes, we are laboring together. That feeling comes up, it's an enemy of oneness in my heart. And before I let it take fruit in my behavior, I take that feeling and I put it at the altar and say, that is an enemy of oneness. I have feelings of offense. You know, Jared, our amazing worship leader, good friend of mine for a long time, a couple of years ago, he came and he asked me, he said, hey, Jeff, can, can, I, can I go help lead worship for the youth group over at Slow Naz? I have an opportunity to work with the youth pastor there. And in my heart, I am a bridge builder. I, I, I get excited about every opportunity where we can, we can help another church, where we can, and, and I say, yes, go bless them with everything, that, the, every grace that you have from here. Go bless them with it. Serve them well on Friday nights. It's gonna be a blessing. And also bring back something for us. Well, I find out, I mean, you know, our church has been in transition for the last couple of years, and he was not really sure about his role here, not because of anything we had said, but like it's, I would say it's normal to feel unsettled about that. And he was like, Lord, you know, they, he, he said, I'm, I'm really praying. Is this, is this where God has planted me? I've always been here, but it's kind of causing me to look at it through new lens. And I didn't know that was going on. And he was offered a position when the worship leader position over there at Slonaz came up. The pastor there offered him a position um, and uh, was going to offer to pay him more than I could pay him. And I didn't know that had happened. The pastor didn't approach me about it. And I found out about it later when Jared said, you know, I prayed about it and I believe that God has called us here and to serve you. And so what was supposed to be this conversation that I could have received, this feeling of offense got in, not at Jared, but against the pastor of the other church. That's an enemy of oneness. You know, every friendship that you, every person that you're friends with, you are not their only friend. But we look at our friendships as if like they're, they're, I'm their only friend. All the, all the conversations and things we hear about, we look in, in contest as if we're their only friend. But Jared had other friends. 
I didn't like that. <laughs> but the feeling of offense rises up in my heart. And the Passover there had, it did not earn that feeling. He knew Jared was unsettled at, in that season. There was something that came up. And, you know, as pastors, all of us, we are not in the business of saying no for other people. We can't be. We have to make the invitations and the asks and believe that we are all connected by one spirit and that the Holy Spirit is going to confirm in thing. We oftentimes are laying out and says, you know, I, I don't know who the next person is, but I'm laying this out. Would you consider it? I've asked many people that question. Except when somebody asks one of my people that question, I don't like it. <laughs> right? That's the, the feeling of offense comes up. And I have to take that feeling, name it, put it at the altar, and declare that it is an enemy of oneness. And that I celebrate God's work through the Slow Naz Church. And those that they are reaching and the pillar of faith that their pastor is and a dear friend who comes to support and does all kinds of things behind the scenes to support oneness in our community. I have feelings of self-righteousness. In our, we get together once a month and we pray. And there's one pastor who, I, who preaches. That's what I call it. <laughs> when he prays, he preaches. Except he starts it out with Heavenly Father and then he preaches a sermon <laughs> in prayer. And when he preaches, in my heart, I start rolling the eyes of my heart. Right? And I, as I'm rolling the eyes of my heart, I'm thinking about the other pastor friend that I have, and we're going to talk about this, this person and laugh about this person after the prayer time. I'm thinking about this in my head. And I catch myself thinking about it. I'm like, no, that's not right. I mean, it was just a quick check. I didn't really repent of it in the moment. I just said, no, no to that. Well, after the prayer time was over, my, the pastor friend who I was thinking about talking to him about came up to me and asked me the same question. So then I really had to say, no, I need to walk away from that, right? That feeling of self-righteousness that I pray better. What? I pray better. What business does he have even being a pastor? He doesn't know how to pray. Like these are, I had feelings of self-righteousness and the enemy comes in so subtly to our hearts, it's an enemy of oneness. Had to take it out, lay it at the altar and say, no, that is an enemy of oneness. And the last one is comfort. It's really easy to sit around the same small table and talk to the same three other pastor friends that are already agree with everything I believe about the state of the church and about the most important things coming and, you know, that, that already have the same, that are part of the same theological stream as we are doctrinally similar. Or what, like it's easy to sit and just talk with those three people every time. It's comfortable. It's easier. And so are you saying, Pastor Jeff, are, are you saying that I have to empty all those chairs out and only put people that don't agree with me? That just doesn't feel very comfortable. I am not saying that at all. 
I'm saying that if we do not intentionally step across onto bridges, we are going to sort every friend that doesn't agree with us out of our circle. If you look around and everyone is the same, that's not oneness. It takes intentionality. And I have to take out, and sometimes I have to go intentionally have lunch with and have coffee with and talk with and really listen and allow, God, what is the grace that you've given this person? What is the gift you've given this person? What voice have you given this person? What, how can I see you and understand you better through this person? If you've decided you can learn from anyone, you will. Oneness requires our effort. Worship team, we're gonna sing a song at the end here. And I just, um, it's a song called I Surrender. And I am asking, what are the enemies of oneness in your heart? The enemies of oneness are not things going on in the news. The enemies of oneness are not things that are going on in our community. The enemies of oneness are in our heart. You cannot lay down somebody else's enemies, but you can lay down your own. When enemies of oneness come up in your heart, you can name them, lay them down, declare they are an enemy of oneness and move forward. If you noticed, I never said that I was jealous, I was offended, I was self-righteous, or I was comfortable. Because I am a child of God. I am not my feelings. I am not my thoughts. I think and I feel. I felt jealousy. I felt offense. I felt self-righteousness. And I felt the the temptation of comfort, but I am not those things. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. You are not your feelings. You are not your thoughts. You think and you feel. Because as soon as you own and make your feelings your identity, you can't lay that down. You can't. You can only lay down what's in your head.